and I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio Professor Cordelia Fine and um, she is a professor in the history and philosophy of science which is a very interesting field in itself at the Faculty of Arts but she's not just that, she's also a psychologist and a scientist, an academic and an author, a best-selling author and she has written a book called Testosterone Rex. I'll just welcome you anyway, first of all, Cordelia. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. And so starting out with how we've progressed in our understanding of sex, you talk about testosterone wrecks and sexual selection and how an understanding of sexual selection which was written and put forward by Charles Darwin has somewhat sent people off on the wrong track when it comes to our understanding of the sexes. Could you expound that theory for us and let us know how that put us on the wrong track? Yes, absolutely. And and I mean, the reason that I... The reason I called the book Testosterone Rex was to capture this idea that in the evolution of science that you're talking about, um, this this interconnected set of beliefs about, you know, risk-taking, competitive masculinity being something that's evolved in males to increase their reproductive success and is therefore wired into the male brain and fueled by testosterone is really based on last century science. So all of the science has evolved, whether it's in evolutionary biology, whether whether it's an understanding of the influence of sex on the brain and brain development, whether it's in the relationships between hormones and behaviour, whether it's in just understanding of evolutionary process, processes itself, the science has really moved on in really exciting and interesting ways. And yet our, our kind of beliefs about sex and sex differences and evolution of sex differences is really stuck in the past. So and one great example of that is, which I focus on in the first part of the book, is, as you say, this idea of sexual selection. So this is a sort of subset within the idea of natural selection, which is, you know, at least Australia at least, a not sort of not, contra- not controversial idea. And the idea behind uh, sexual selection is sort of characteristics that uh, one sex of the species has that gives us an advantage in reproductive success over uh, other individuals of the same sex. So, for example, the peacock grows its sort of extravagant... Uh, extravagant feathery feathery tail because not because it's obviously helps it run away from predators or catch prey it's actually a bit of a sort of um, bit of a hindrance in that respect but that it appeals to the females and if you just say the, the the term cheap sperm everyone kind of immediately can fill in the gaps between cheap sperm and male dominance in 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 the world because there's a sort of interconnected set of ideas that because reproduction is really cheap for males because they only have to contribute that single sperm whereas it's much more expensive for females particularly female mammals because there's that big fat juicy egg there's gestation lactation there's uh, care of the care of the offspring it seems like um, the idea is that there's much more to be gained potentially from a male to um, have many many mates so you can have a much greater reproductive variance as it's known you can have like you know hit the reproductive jackpot if you manage to have a lot of sex with a lot of different mates whereas for females the idea is well look all the all the costs of you know the the uh the time and the energy and the risks of having sex you don't need that you just need one mate and then you're done your job's 
done and all the females are going to reproduce, reproduce to the same degree. So that idea, which came from actually some experiments with fruit flies, uh, has really dominated um, our understanding of differences between males and females, this idea being that, you know, we take the human case, it's really only advantageous for males to to compete for uh for mates, for resources, for territory, the kinds of things that will appeal to, to females, whereas for females it's just that the cost-benefit ratio just isn't worth it. But the, the thing is evolutionary biology has been in this really exciting state of turmoil for decades now and these old ideas have really been thrown out of the window. So although this dynamic does apply to some species, there are many other kinds of factors that are actually involved. Uh, it's not just to do with the single sperm and, and the egg. And it turns out that there's a lot of diversity across the animal kingdom in mating systems because of the number of factors that are involved. And because of this, because these things can be with to do with how many mates are available, what are the resources that are available, even within a species, the kinds of ways that animals behave and their kind of core business of reproducing can, can be quite dynamic. And I think one really exciting development in this area has been the recognition of the importance of competition for females and particularly female mammals. So uh, this was really overlooked in the past, like why would females have to, have to compete? Because, you know, any female can achieve the modest feat of getting herself impregnated or inseminated by an eager male. But it turns out that actually rank and resources are really important uh, for females' reproductive success. Well, it reminds me of um, one of the examples in the book, which is about the langurs. Is that how to pronounce it? They're Indian monkeys? I believe so, yeah. Langurs, yeah. yeah. So that was an example where it was really important for the female monkeys to compete and be, as you say in the book, promiscuous. And when you say promiscuous, you don't necessarily mean the common term that we use to kind of sometimes denigrate people for um, wanting to have sex you mean actually just people actively or animals in this case actively seeking out a mating partner in a, a fair, fairly healthy fashion <laughs> yeah i try to use promiscuous in a sort of value-free yeah. <laughs> judgment-free way just just actually to try and reduce the amount of kind of technical terms and that. adjectives yeah. you'd have to use yeah. absolutely yeah. And in that example, it was just really interesting to see that Sarah Blaffer-Hardy, who was the Harvard scientist who discovered these monkeys and saw women, um, or females, sorry, being uh, competitive, it really opened up her mind to this idea that females could be competitive and would want to be. And it reminds me of this idea of, you know, a stereotype where females are the passive living beings and then the males are the active ones. Um, how do female mammals or female animals actually display their competitiveness and their promiscuity and why do they do it? Well, look, I mean, I think the example that you describe is a really uh, important one because it, it you know, the, the, because of the thinking around this idea that it's only worth it for males to compete was so powerful that, you know, the, the fact that females were actually seeking multiple mates was somehow overlooked. And it took this um, female sort of Harvard PhD student actually kind of ha could hardly believe what she was seeing because it just didn't fit with the prevailing theories. But, you know, the females were seeking multiple partners and that was actually part of this really important scientific insight, which is now a very kind of productive um, basis of scientific research of, well, what are the benefits to females of seeking multiple mates or of promiscuity? Um, and it sort of put research into all sorts of different interesting directions that, that it wouldn't otherwise have gone into. Um, in terms of competition, I mean, I think that's, it is amazing how this sort of strong link in our mind between maleness and competition uh, has really 
is so powerful. Um, I mean, I, I actually remember I, a few years ago, I went to the RSPCA with my kids because we wanted to get a kitten to keep our cat company. And we were told that we couldn't bring a kitten home because our female cat, Pippi, would destroy this <laughs> income or onto her territory. And we were sort of shocked and amazed. And I think it was because, I don't think we've been surprised at all if we had a male cat, but this idea that, you know, a female cat would have to be protecting territory and against intruders was sort of shocking to us. So when you look at the the data from, um, from humans, so for example, there's been a lot of interest in... Uh, particularly in economics, for example, on sex differences in the willingness to compete. And it's often presented as, uh, you know, a potential explanation for why women don't get as far up in the workplace, the occupational ladders, as men do, because they're just not willing to take the risks of competition. But actually, when you what you find when you look at those data is uh, that they're pretty contextual. So... For instance, some of the sex differences in willingness to compete, and these are sort of lab-based tasks, so the things like, you know, throwing a ball into a bucket and you can either be paid for the number, like a low rate for the number of balls you get in the bucket or you can compete and get a much higher rate if you throw more balls in than your competitor, right? So what they find is even on these kind of bloodless tasks, sex differences that they see in the kind of traditional... Um, samples for this kind of research, you know, the sort of Western undergraduate samples, for instance, they don't necessarily see those sex differences when they go much further afield in the world. And that's a sort of a good example of one of the points that's been raised about psychology is that so many of our findings are based on, you know, essentially North American um, undergraduate, young undergraduate students. Uh, but another thing is even when you change the sort of realm of competition, the domain of competition uh, to something that's a bit less masculine or a bit more feminine, you, you see those sex differences in competition uh, disappearing or or even reversing. And I think that's just a, you know, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, it's it would be extraordinary to have a world in which, you know, there is so much status inequality between the sexes and have that not influence things at some some psychological level. There's a lot in the first part of the book and it's called past and that's around these uh, animal behaviours and, and scientific studies around how animals are behaving and then when you get to the present part of the book which is discussing current day you really address this idea of um, whether there is a difference between the sexes and if men and women are necessarily have different brains or behave differently because they have different levels of testosterone and you know as, as we know testosterone is a reason why men you know develop their own different genitalia from women and they also have you know they look more masculine uh, physically in terms of being a bit more imposing maybe having a beard being a bit more hairy so you know there's that really visible part of testosterone and masculinity that we see when males have their varying levels of testosterone. But then I think what your book is saying is that we make this assumption and we jump to the idea that then necessarily testosterone has an effect on the way that men and women behave. That's right. So we see it as being the kind of hormonal essence of not just physical masculinity, but also psychological masculinity. And this is where it becomes really important to not make kind of uh, simple generalizations about what men and women are actually like. So um, so I think one, one thing is, you know, you're making this point about how the first part of my book is sort of breaking down this idea that it's only sort of evolutionarily advantageous for males to compete. And that's really important because if you start with this framework of, 
well, let's try and understand why men are more competitive than women, then, you know, you're not going to be thinking about, okay, well, actually, what are the kinds of domains in which females might be more comfortable? You're not actually going to be collecting those kinds of data. And it was actually often female economists who are saying, let's try looking at competition in different kinds of domains that are a bit less masculine, for Mm. instance. It's like a blind spot that people have. Exactly. It's a form of confirmation bias that you you don't expect to find particularly. You kind of look for the data that you expect to find, not the data that you would have no reason to think that you could find, like female promiscuity. Um, but the other thing is, so so then once you sort of started to look more closely at the actual data on sex differences and you find that it's not that men are competitive and women don't like to compete, when you start, when you think in these kind of gross generalisations, testosterone seems like a really obvious explanation for it. You think, well, men are competitive, men have a lot of testosterone. And then, of course, if you've got in your background this idea only males have evolved to compete, then it seems like testosterone is a good mechanism for creating that difference. But then when you start to sort of think in, in, a, in a more nuanced way and go, okay, well, there could be reasons for females to compete too. And actually, when we look at the data, we find that sometimes females are just as competitive as males, sometimes more competitive. It depends what environment they're in, what kind of social structure and so on, what kind of domain it is. That Then testosterone no longer seems like a good explanation for... The sec- when you do see sex differences in in competition, it's no longer kind of something that seems like a kind of powerful explanation of why males and females would behave in different kinds of ways, particularly when you think about the fact that people often focus on the fact that post-pubescence, males have much more testosterone circulating in their blood than females do. There's there's some overlap in how much testosterone there is in, in the blood, but not, not a lot. Whereas when you actually look at behaviour, there's a there's a lot of overlap. Sometimes there's so much overlap that basic, basically they're kind of indistinguishable, but sometimes there are differences. But even when there are differences, they're much, much smaller than the, the differences in testosterone. And this points to something really important about testosterone and its influence on behaviour. So one is that the levels in the blood, which is what is the easiest to measure and what we sort of focus on because that's where it's sort of significant difference in the sexes, it's just one part of this really complex system in the brain. And there are many other factors involved that, that influence what effect testosterone is actually having in the brain itself. So the circulating level is just one part of a very complex system. And then in itself, the testosterone or the hormones, they're just one part of many, many other factors that feed into decision-making. And so even when you look at the animal literature, you don't find testosterone being this really powerful determinant of behaviour at all. And that, that makes perfect sense when we think about the fact that men have a lot more testosterone than women, but that on the whole, they aren't showing distinct patterns of behaviour. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR. Uh, I'm Amy and I have with me in the studio Professor Cordelia Fine and Cordelia has been speaking with us about her new book Testosterone Rex. So we got to the point where we were discussing testosterone and the link between testosterone levels and behaviour. And we were talking about the fact that it doesn't necessarily correspond. So if you have high testosterone levels, you're not necessarily more aggressive. But your book gives an example of where testosterone levels, well, they're not 
static. They don't stay the same um, in men or women and they respond to environmental contexts and social situations. So Cordelia, could you share with us that example and how that is illuminating as to the real role of testosterone and whether there are other factors at play in terms of what determines our behaviour? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the really sort of exciting and important shifts in science. So, you know, we've talked previously about this sort of shift in evolutionary biology, and this is a shift in behavioural endocrinology or the relationship between hormones and behaviour, which has really shifted away from the idea of hormones like testosterone sort of driving behaviour, but rather being responsive to the social world itself and actually being something that um, enables plasticity, so enables the animal to adapt to its particular circumstances and its particular context. And even in even in non-human animals, the kind of subjective perception of a situation can be quite important for how testosterone responds to a particular situation. But of course, when it comes to ourselves, you know, we're the, the, the kings or queens of subjectivity, so this becomes a much uh, uh, more important aspect of things. And some, some really re- interesting research in this area has been really looking at how that kind of subjective perception or interpretation of what is, you know, to everyone on the surface, the same situation or same stimulus can have different effects on hormonal biology depending on how you interpret it. So one study, for example, was done by Justin Carre and colleagues. And what they did is they took advantage of the fact that there had been this very intensive uh, intervention. It was called the fast track intervention. It was a 10 year long intervention on boys who are at a high risk of developing you know, criminal or delinquent behaviour. And so there was a control group and the intervention group. And the intervention group uh, involved this, as I said, this 10-year intervention that was really quite trying to equip them in various different ways with sort of social and emotional regulation skills that may have been sort of lacking in forms of scaffolding in their, in the environment that they, that they had. And many years later, those, some of those boys were brought into the lab and they were given, they were put in a situation where they were provoked by someone else. And the experimenters measured how aggressively they responded to that provocation. And they also measured their, the change in testosterone. And this is this sort of recognition of the fact that, as you say, testosterone levels aren't sort of set by genes. They're actually dynamic. And what they found was that in the, the boys who had had the intervention, there was less of a reaction of testosterone, there was less testosterone increase in response to that provocation. And those uh, young adults, those young men also responded less aggressively to that situation. And although the, the experimenters sort of can't establish causality from that particular experiment, statistically it looked like the, 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 the lesser change in testosterone may have been sort of mediating that, that um, less aggressive response. And this is a really good example of how you know, there's a lot. There's still quite a lot of science that sort of simply measures, takes a sort of snapshot measurement of men's and women's testosterone levels. And of course, this doesn't take into account the many other things going on in that entire system. Uh, not least to mention that sometimes testosterone is converted to estrogen in the brain, for example. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's a recognition that when you measure testosterone levels, you're not measuring sex, just pure sex. You're actually measuring you're capturing the entire kind of social history of that individual and their that particular social context. And of course, that social history and that social context is something that can be very gendered. So when scientists are sort of trying to understand the links between testosterone 
changes in competition, for example, and they're finding a whole sort of just... The results are really confusing. They're kind of a bit messy and inconsistent. And the explanation, one explanation is that there's so much subjective stuff going on in a competition. There are all these things, you know, how do you how do you think you're going to do? Who's your who's your competitor? If you've just failed, what what's your attribution for the failure? Is it because you think you're no good or you had bad luck? And all these things, of course, can can have an influence of gendered expectations and norms and stereotypes. So even when we're looking at something as simple as, you know, testosterone response to a competitive situation, you're still actually capturing elements of gender in there. Yeah, and I mean, you you refer to this idea of a mosaic so that testosterone is just one part of different inputs or factors that can actually lead to certain behaviours and outcomes. So what are the other elements in this mosaic of an individual that makes men and women behave as they do? And how does that really prevent us from ascribing men to have a male brain with dominantly male, in, in inverted commas, stereotyped characteristics and similarly female brains with very female characteristics? Well, this is another area where the research has really moved on. So sort of the sort of previous scientific models of how male and female brains develop differently really focused on sort of testosterone played this really key role in masculinizing sort of particular circuits in the male brain and defeminizing them. And then in, in the absence of this, the sort of female is passive. Uh, nothing, you know, nothing in particular would happen in the, in the female brain. And so you had these sort of distinct male and female circuits and this this model has become much more complex now. So it's understood that there are a number of kind of interacting factors and mechanisms. So the sort of genetics and hormones and epigenetic effects and environmental effects. And these can all sort of interact in a very dynamic and idiosyncratic way to, to create what have been described as these mosaics of a sort of more male typical or more female typical uh, characteristics throughout the brain. So what that means is that although there are sex differences in the brain, these don't add up in a consistent way to create something that we could kind of sensibly describe as being male brains and female brains. And so that kind of matches actually what we know about male and female behaviour, that people's behaviour is a mix of, on the whole, is a mix of masculine and feminine qualities. And when we, although on average there might be differences between the sexes in a particular characteristic, you can't locate people on a continuum of masculinity or a continuum of femininity. They're sort of these sort of multidimensional, you know, it's like a gender pick and mix. And so that makes it much more complicated to think about, you know, the male brain as the cause of sex differences, the female brain as the cause of sex differences, or indeed testosterone as the cause of sex differences. And actually risk-taking is a really good example of this because this is again something that used to be thought of as being this sort of single dimension so you were you were a risk taker or you were risk averse and when you think in that way you sort of think okay well men are risk takers and women are risk averse and there might be the occasional woman who's a bit risk taking and the occasional man who's a you know a bit of a girl as we would say um or a girl's blouse as we used to say <laughs> in my school um, but, you know, when you're thinking about this continuum of risk-taking, you think, oh, well, you know, maybe it's testosterone, so more testosterone, more risk-taking. And actually a lot of research into financial risk-taking seems to be sort of implicitly or explicitly has this as their kind of background assumption. But when you look more carefully about at risk-taking, you find that people are quite idiosyncratic 
you know, there's a sort of mosaic, I suppose you'd say, in the kinds of risks that they're willing to take. So people who are willing to take financial risks may not be willing to take physical risks. People who are quite happy to take social risks may not be willing to take recreational risks, for example. And when you look at what it is that sets apart someone who's willing to take one kind of risk but not another kind of risk, it's not that one per- some people love risk and some people don't because most people actually don't like risk per se. We're all a bit, most of us are a bit risk averse. It's that we see a different mix of benefits and costs to that risky situation. So that's what sets apart someone who is happy to take a financial risk. They see a more favourable mix of benefits and costs to someone who isn't, you know, would rather government bonds all the way but would happy to jump out of an aeroplane on a with a with a parachute right so then that starts to be really interesting for looking at sex differences in risk taking so it's not that women are risk have a sort of negative attitude towards risk and men have a positive ones it's to do with the mix of benefits and risks but actually you know in in a flawed unequal society these kinds of uh, benefits and risks which you know the benefits include not just material benefits but also sort of less tangible effects on norms uh, you know reputation for example so it becomes all tied tied up for example with norms and identity and of course the fact of you know how will people perceive you will you get the same rewards for taking that kind of risk and i think this is so important to think about in relation to these suggestions that you know women women aren't willing to take the risks to get on their careers for example because you have to say the question is, well, are they actually operating in the same cost-benefit space? Do they, when they add up their calculations, do they come to the, do they come to the same, uh, same conclusions? And you know, sort of a whole host of research from social science suggesting, well, no, there aren't the same benefits to women, for example, to, from negotiating for a higher salary, for example, and there may be greater costs, for example, you know as women become more competent and more successful, they become less likeable and so on and so forth. And there's this example of a backlash effect and it's a term that's been used to describe what you're describing really, which is that when women act contrary to their stereotype of femaleness and needing to be collaborative and nurturing and kind and warm, and they might be assertive or appear assertive in a very male-dominated field, there are negative consequences. And one of the examples you gave was Michelle Ryan's study uh, from Exeter University about women being less willing to take career risks because they perceived that there was less benefit. And certainly, aren't women just being realists in that scenario? So it's not necessarily their lack of ambition or their lack of confidence, but that they're being pragmatic and uh, avoiding negative consequences? That's right. And the, the, the lack of perceived benefit, you know, what they didn't identify, the fact that they were sort of just less invested in their careers, but that it was... A perception of less support. They had less confidence that their organisation was a meritocracy. Um, uh, they, they felt they had less support in the organisation. They had fewer role models to look up to. And you know, you sort of think think about you know looking up. And if you don't see many people who look like you, it's hard to not let that influence your um, assessment of well, you know, am I going to be successful? Can I can I really do this? So that was a really nice example of how. Yeah, exactly that 
um, the feeding in of the sort of different perceptions of the situation, which I'm sure in some cases had some validity to them, or at least the, the, the research would suggest that, were actually sort of feeding into those, um, you know, quite rational decisions that were less to do with just intrinsically less being interested in taking risks, but um, having different likely benefits and costs to, to behaving in the same way. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about the idea of masculinity and femininity, just in kind of closing up this discussion, is that, you know, you talk about the idea that masculinity and femininity used to be opposite ends of the same scale or a spectrum, but that's not necessarily what the research reveals. Yeah, that's right. So it's sort of, it's, it's, you know, yet, yet another shift in thinking that's in the book. So the, the sort of first systematic attempt to measure masculinity and femininity to sort of assume that if you were masculine, then you were unfeminine. They're kind of polar opposites. So if you if you gave a masculine response on a on a particular scale, then you know you gained a point for being masculine, and then if you gave a feminine response, then you lost a point for being um, feminine, uh, of course. And um, <laughs> typical. <laughs> uh, and but then you know the there was sort of progression and people realised that you could have feminine and masculine qualities so it was seen as being sort of two-dimensional. But now, it's, you know, it's even more complex than that. So this idea that you don't even just have two dimensions but you have this sort of mosaic of, of characteristics and, and that, again, makes things a lot more complicated when you're trying to think about how biology may be, um, you know, playing, playing a role in that. And one thing I have to say is that you sort of are become... I think a lot of people who work in this area are becoming decreasingly comfortable with the idea of even referring to masculine and feminine traits in the sense that sometimes the differences are so modest uh, and so contextual and contingent on other situations that it almost starts to seem a bit odd to sort of start refer- you know, describing things that are very, very common in women as masculine and things that are very, very common in men as feminine. I mean, it's a useful shorthand, but um, I think it's, yeah just as a caveat to that. It doesn't reflect the complexity of humanity and how we actually are. Exactly, exactly. Thank you so much, Cordelia, for sharing the insights that you've got and gleaned from all of your research and the research of others that you've looked at and really made easy to engage with and very humorous. And it's really enjoyable read and I highly recommend the book. It's called Testosterone Rex. Thanks so much, Cordelia, for joining us. Thank you, Amy.